Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2014 Jackson Hole Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Admiral Gary Ruffhead, an Annenberg Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Changing Times, Changing World, Challenges and Opportunities, and it was recorded on August 5th, 2014. Colin, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for the hospitality uh, of the group today, and uh, also for giving me my first visit to Jackson Hole. Uh, I think I will be coming back, uh, <laughs> largely because um, largely because I was able to send a photo to my wife of the view of the mountain. So I, I know I'm coming back after having done that. But I'd uh, particularly like to thank uh, Hoover and uh, David Davenport for the opportunity to share some thoughts with you tonight, but more importantly, to really have a discussion on things that I believe are going to be important for the future of our country and for the world in, in which we are going to live. Now, David threw uh, a little bit of pressure on me when he said, I'm supposed to be the optimistic one, but I'm not sure I can do that. Uh, but I also have to take this opportunity to thank Hoover and to thank you who make uh, things at Hoover possible, uh, as, uh, as Bill mentioned this afternoon. It really is a unique place. Throughout my career, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of think tanks and different organizations to try to look into the future and, and recommend and develop uh, policy and approaches for a world that we know is going to be changing rapidly. And I will tell you, not just because I'm affiliated there, but having seen many in action, Hoover is really unique. It's unique because of the terrific colleagues who are there. You met several of them today, uh, but other people of great stature who bring their experience and their perspective and their insights to what happens. But Hoover is unique among think tanks because it sits in the middle of one of the world's greatest universities. And from that, you can draw that intellectual capital as you try to sort through things and think about things and bring in different perspectives. And then if you expand a little beyond that, it sits in the middle of the world's center of innovation, Silicon Valley. And so it's that mix that I think gives Hoover a very, very unique perspective on things. And so for me, it's been a great opportunity since I retired just shy of two years ago to be able to go there and think about uh, policy matters in a, in a less compressed time frame than I was used to in my past life. But I also always keep in mind that when you're talking about policy approaches and policy decisions, that it's really hard. That life in the arena, and I know many of you here have been in that public arena, it's never as easy, as clear, uh, and as simple as you would like it to be. And, uh, you know, D.C., Washington, where all of this churns around and where the policy comes out, is a very hard place. I've been in and out of there several times. Uh, I tried to do it in 10-year intervals, which I thought was a pretty reasonable time span, so I didn't get uh, too tainted by it all. Uh, but I would say that the last round was a little harder than most because of the nature of the relationships, the issues that are there, and some other factors that I'll talk about. 
And I came away every time knowing that Harry Truman was right, that if you want a friend in Washington, you get a dog. Um, but being a military guy, and you always have to have options when you're in the military, I always, every time I was in Washington, I had two dogs in case one of them turned on me. So I just did that. Um, but, you know, the world that we live in, it, it really is uh, 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 disturbing, it's disorganized, it's disruptive. Uh, but remarkably, if you look at the violence in the world today, it's kind of counterintuitive. It's much less than it used to be. In the 20th century, two great world wars, if you take all the data, 100,000 people, there were 60 violent deaths in that 20th century. Uh, today, it's 0.3 of a person, whatever that means, per 100,000 violent deaths. But yet we're bombarded with uh, images of disorder and disruption uh, in so many different places. And, uh, and I think that uh, the big issue for us as a country, as we look at all of that, and we look at this disturbed world that's, that's in play, is the seeming inability that we have to address the problems, to control the situations, and bring things back to the path that we would like and that we would consider normal. And I don't know if it's the 13 years of war that we have been through in Iraq and Afghanistan, the longest period of sustained combat in the history of our country. And I can't tell you enough how proud you should be of the young men and women who have been in that fight. I believe that when I retired, I left the finest military in which I've ever served over a 40-year period. They are truly extraordinary young men and women who have performed so admirably. But, but we're also going through the period, and I get the questions, was it worth it? In the events of the day in Afghanistan, the young army general who was uh, murdered today, just feed those types of questions. Uh, you look around the world and you look at North Korea and the young leader who's there. I have to admit I was a little optimistic when he came in, but now he looks to be about the worst of the lot that they've had up there. Where he has taken his country, that's really a basket case, and he's doubling down on his nuclear program. What does that mean? It's also the Ukraine and what's happening there. But for me, what the real issue is in the Ukraine is the relationship that we have with Russia and what will NATO do about it into the future. It's the Arab Spring that took place, or the Arab Awakening, and, and the hopefulness that, that came into play after that. And now we see things disintegrating in Libya, where we had to, this past weekend, remove our embassy staff to Tunisia. Uh, it's Iraq, where we shed so much blood and treasure that now we have the Islamic State, formerly known as the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, that has swept through. And again, this weekend, they seized some pretty strategic uh, parts of that country, a significant oil field and then a very strategic dam that can control the water flows into the rest of the country. And as was mentioned today, um, the, the global economy 
and our own sluggish recovery. And I, so I think all of these things combine to, to put a pall over how are we going forward as a country. But in a way, it, it's almost taken us full circle. I came of age in Vietnam uh, when we started out strong and then things began to turn and we left Southeast Asia uh, never wanting to go back, wanting to put Vietnam in the rearview mirror. Uh, we still continued to fight the Cold War. We won, but there was this strong desire not to become involved in foreign entanglements. But the world was moving on, and even today, you don't get a choice. The world moves on, and how do you play in it? But I think one of the most significant periods as we look back uh, will be the 1970s. And why do I say that? Because it was in the 70s that the American people discovered the Middle East. And we discovered it in a couple of ways. Early in that decade, there was the oil embargo. And I can judge from people of similar hair color that you remember what that was like. It was a shock to us. It was a shock to our way of life. It was a shock to our economy. Uh, it changed how we viewed things. It changed how people in the Middle East uh, viewed their ability to affect us. And then came the Yom Kippur War in 1973, that surprise strike by Egypt and Syria, kind of changed how we thought about that part of the world. And then the fall of the Shah in Iran and the nightly count of how long our hostages had been in captivity and our inability to get them out. And then when we tried to get them out, we had the debacle of Desert One. And that was another shock to who we were. But then there was a period that came along and President Reagan began to make some decisions and some investments and the swagger and the confidence started to come back. We invested in our military, we invested in new capabilities, but more importantly, we invested in capacity, the numbers of things that we had to go out and be in places around the world that mattered to us, that mattered to our friends, and that mattered to our partners. And we had some quick wins. There was Grenada and Panama, minor fights to be sure. But then Desert Storm, where we so swiftly pushed Saddam Hussein out of Iraq. That was the point where we realized that we were back, we were uncontested, and that we were in very good control of events. Then 9-11 came in, and we began our experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. We're coming off that, and we're drifting into this period, I think, as a country, where we're not too sure that we want this continuous engagement. But the other great change, and Bill Whelan talked about it this afternoon, that I think is somewhat disorienting and causing us to have to think differently about our future, is the information environment in which we live. Good information, critical information, timely information, no longer belongs to the elites not to the leaders of state, not to the military leaders. It is everywhere. And the time with which that information can be transmitted is essentially instantaneous. And everyone on the street has the ability to beam those images around. And I think the other thing that we're seeing play out today, particularly in Iran 
and in, or in, with Israel and Gaza is how that information is shaping opinions in a way that hasn't happened before. I think part of it is because the Arab street, as a result of the Arab Spring, now uh, feels much more connected than they have in the past. But for the first time that I can recall, you have a conflict in which Israel is involved, and Israel is getting pounded by the media, and of all places, by Hollywood. Never thought that was going to happen. But it's how this information is being moved around. And in that environment, it makes it very difficult to make decisions and to lead. I think it will only become harder because, in my view, we're not going to turn back the information tide. There are some countries that are trying to do it, China and, and, and several others. But I think that we're going to have to live with that as we go into the future. We're going to continue to be bombarded with things we don't like, and we're going to be confused as to whether we should engage or not engage and what's the best way to do it. And our leadership will not have that private space or time that past leaders have had to kind of think their way through some of these things. So as I look at this disordered and disrupted world, uh, I think it's important that we not get pulled away by everything that happens. Everything that takes place in the world, every bit of violence is not a uh, threat to the nation. So how do we parse it out? How do we look at it? And I'll just give you some of my thoughts as, as we go into the future. Um, what's going on in, uh, in the Levant, the, the Eastern Mediterranean, Israel, and uh, with Hamas today, um, that story will continue to unwind. I think it is important that we maintain and demonstrate and show a solidarity with Israel uh, and that there's no daylight between us. I think it also is significant that the key Arab states that are critical in other parts of the Middle East are basically siding with Israel as opposed to Hamas. That's a very different dynamic that's taking place. So I think that will continue to play out. Uh, and I would not be surprised if Israel has to go in a few more times um, and, uh, and, and address the threats to their country. Um, how they do it, uh, I believe that they will exercise great care, but there will also be collateral damage. That's the nature of war. Ukraine, as I mentioned, uh, for me, the significance of the Ukraine is how it has changed our relationship with Russia. And it will also be determined in, by what happens in NATO. And does NATO and the European Union come together and address that issue, or will there be some vacillation? But the, the changed relationship with Russia is really important, and I would submit it's more important to Russia than it is to us because I believe Russia needs the United States. Why? They have a one-trick pony for an economy. It's all energy. They have a demographic that is abysmal. It's the only major country where male life expectancy is dropping. Health issues are third world. Demographically, they're going to lose the Russian Far East. And as Russia has been a European, an Asian, an Arctic, and a Central Asian power, they'll soon, I believe, simply because of the demographic trends of their loss 
Chinese gains, they will cease to become a viable Pacific nation. So that is a significant dimension. South Asia is important. And when I say South Asia, it's Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. The discussion today will probably be about Afghanistan. How many troops will we have left behind? But the real issue is Pakistan. Pakistan is a country of 190 million people today, roughly. By 2030, it will have 230 million people. It will be the most populous Muslim country in the world. They are already straining with infrastructure, with energy, with security, um, and they have a demographic that is going to put them in a bad place. They are also relying very heavy, heavily on nuclear weapons, and that is a dangerous mix. So our relationship with Pakistan, I believe, is extraordinarily important. And we have to get away from thinking about Pakistan in the hyphenated way that we have over the last 12 years. We could not say Pakistan without saying AFPAC. Pakistan is going to be a major player in South Asia, and I think we have to have a thoughtful relationship with them. Africa has always puzzled me because our focus has been on counterterrorism, but particularly the southern part of Africa, the uh, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, is going to take off economically. The Chinese have already uh, moved quickly several years ago to go there. There's a conference going on in Washington, as you all know, but we needed to start thinking about Africa about 10 years ago. What sort of trade relationships do we want to have? What sort of uh, programs do we want to have in place to address some of the corruption issues and infrastructure issues? There is a huge opportunity in Africa. But we think of it as a single entity. We talk about Germany, Afghanistan, China. We talk about Africa. There are 49 countries in Africa. And there are many Africas, depending on where you set down. So we need an Africa strategy that's beyond counterterrorism. I would also say that we can't take our eyes off that ball because there is a phrase that a bright young author coined uh, called the 10th parallel. And it's the 10th. Uh, parallel of latitude, north latitude, above the equator. And it cuts through Nigeria, Chad, Mali, Sudan, and Somalia. And I think if you go back one year in the news, there are all bad things happening in all of those places. That fault line will continue for some time, so we can't take our eye off that ball. Getting away from the geographic issues that I think we're going to face, is this whole world of cyber, you know, all of the things that move on the net and the internet. Um, and it's not, that's just not about defense. To me, I think some of the more critical areas are finance, infrastructure, and transportation. How do we protect it? What are the types of policies that we have to have in place? How do we train people? And we talked a little bit about education this afternoon. How do we pull a workforce to deal in that very high end uh, of technology uh, and be able to service all those sectors of the economy. I think that's going to be a huge challenge for us. Uh, and the attacks are going to come. I, right before I came down, there was a, a, a piece of news. There was a Russian gang that has obtained 1.2 billion, 1.2 billion passwords and 500 million email addresses. Um, this is the brave new world that we're going to uh, live in. 
And then for us as a society, how do we deal with all these policy issues, protection issues, and still deal with matters of privacy? I think, that, I think privacy and the Internet is going to be one of the major things that we're going to be dealing with. So those are kind of the, 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 the areas to be thinking about. But what do I think are the real strategic areas that need to be focused upon? The first is the Sunni-Shia divide. That's what's reshaping the Middle East today. The two dominant sects in Islam, Sunnis and the Shias, absolute hatred for one another, uh, and that is what's evolving in the Middle East. The lines that were drawn after World War I, the fabricated countries that came from that, that is what is in play. And what will the Middle East look like? Who are the, the leaders with whom we want to have the relationships? What are the strategic relationships? How do we position and work with them in a way that allows a favorable outcome for the region and for us and even beyond then? The next strategic area is the rise of China. Not violent today, but for the first time, we have a strategic competitor coming onto the stage. We can talk about the Cold War and the ideological uh, war that we had with the Soviet Union. But China is a different beast because of its economy, the politics, um, and the trade issues, and, oh, by the way, the military capability that it's uh, putting in place. Now, a lot of folks will say, well, China has big problems. They have a demographic problem because of the one-China policy. They have a horrible environmental circumstance in which they're trying to work their way out of. They have corruption that is extraordinary. Um, and, uh, and they have uh, their own resource problems that are going to be problematic. And it's very easy, I think, in policy circles to simply say, well, they have a lot of problems. We'll be okay when we get to the end game. I'm not ready to write them off. The new regime in China is really taking the bull by the horns. President Xi has consolidated power faster than any other Chinese leader. Uh, the corruption, anti-corruption drive that he's on is going after the big guys. And so I think that he will um, be a formidable force taking his country forward. But also in that area, how do we deal with the alliances? How do we deal with our friends and partners? Because they're worried about the big uh, neighbor to the north, to the west, uh, and to the east. And I believe that we need to look at a policy with regard to China that's not a China policy, but rather an Asia policy. And, and how do we bring in our friends and partners? My Chinese interlocutors, when I go over there, and I go over fairly frequently, uh, will say, you are containing China with your rebalance and your pivot and your air-sea battle and your, uh, all the military moves you're making. And my answer to them is, you're containing China because you're scaring the hell out of everybody that's around you because of what you're doing with the claims in the East China Sea, the South China Sea, the establishment of the air defense identification zone without any forewarning to anyone else. And so I think how we deal with the, those Asian neighbors and friends is going to be really important. And I prefer to think in terms of, the, of our Asian strategy as an Indo-Pacific strategy that stretches from the Straits of Hormuz coming out of the Persian Gulf all the way to the Western Pacific because India is going to be a huge player. Uh, as China continues on around and develops their 
Maritime Silk Road and their string of pearls and different names that have been applied to it, uh, the Indians are going to take a very different position. They think the Indian Ocean is perfectly named, and by golly, they will stand up for that, trust me. Um, and so our strategic relationship with India is going to be hugely important going into the future. Similar to how I ended on, on the other issues where we got away from geography, I'm going to step away from geography again, and this is another strategic issue that we're going to be dealing with, and it's climate. And I'm not going to get into the whys and the wherefores. All that I will say is the planet is changing, and there's no forecast to bring it back the way it was. And what's really changing that's strategically significant? There are three great ice caps on the planet, Antarctica, the Arctic, and the Tibetan ice cap. Antarctica is relatively stable rel relative to the other two. But in the high north, in the Arctic, a new ocean is opening up. That hasn't happened, a change like that hasn't happened since the end of the last ice age. This is a big deal. And particularly if, in, if you're a Navy guy and there's a new ocean opening, you get really excited about those sorts of things. But what it means is there'll be new transportation routes between Europe and Asia. I think some of them are a little overstated, but it uncovers vast resources, iron, zinc, copper, rare, mineral, or rare earth minerals, uh, and there'll be a rush to get to those. There already is. The Chinese have already purchased uh, uh, for over a billion dollars an iron mine in Greenland. Uh, and so that change is going to reshape some of the strategic relationships. It's going to reshape trade routes. It's going to reshape uh, access to resources. So that's a big deal. And how do we uh, approach that? By the way, we become the chair of the Arctic Council next May. We lead that effort for two years. Um, and I'm not seeing a whole lot of planning that's going into how we want to do that and how we want to shape policy. But the other ice cap that is really going to be a big deal is the Tibetan ice cap. It feeds the major rivers of Asia, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, the Mekong, and it passes through China to do that. And China, for the last couple of decades, has been engaged in massive hydroengineering projects that's diverting those rivers and choking them off and, 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 and altering uh, how... Uh, those rivers provide for topsoil, irrigation. Uh, and my concern and my belief is that within two decades, water in Asia will become a source of friction, of confrontation, and of conflict. Uh, because it's also exacerbated by a rising middle class who wants more power, more air conditioning, more IT that also uses a heck of a lot of power. And so there's this issue that's coming because of the climate that we really need to be thinking about how will we deal with the types of relationships. Now, between the 70s and the 90s, uh, our military was called upon 700 times to respond to contingencies. A few of those were combat, some were sanctions, some were show of force, many, in fact, most were humanitarian. The force that did that we don't have on the books for the future. Uh, in this last defense buildup, for the first time ever, as defense spending went up, capital assets went down. Normally it goes the other way. 
but we're already starting low. And, it, and the, the capabilities we'll have, I think, are going to be pretty good, but it's the capacity. The number of uh, forces that we will have to distribute to all of these places that I just talked about is going to be pretty challenging. And the squeeze, really, for the defense budget is coming from within the defense budget. Um, by 2021, 86% of the defense budget will be spent on personnel and compensation and operating and maintenance activities, leaving 14% for research and development uh, and procurement. By 2024, long way off, but 2024 is the last year of the second term of the next president. So it's pretty close. By 2024, zero money for procurement and research and development. That's what's happening from the inside. And you saw the charts from our great economists this morning of all of the entitlement demands and the medical demands. And someone asked a terrific question this morning about servicing the debt. By uh, 2021, if you take a 2% interest rate, uh, the difference between now and then, servicing that debt $693 billion. Our current defense budget is $550 billion. So it's another defense budget plus that's been added in there. So, um, you know, I wanted this to be a very uplifting talk. I think I've delivered on that. So what do we have to do about it? I think it's important that we uh, begin to look strategically about the areas that are important to us as a country and to the global intercourse that will go on over time. I believe it is important that we begin to spend more time, as the great statesmen in our past have done, with the important relationships that we have, particularly in the Middle East and in Asia, and look at them strategically. And sometimes it's really hard to work with them because they make it hard to work with us. Uh, but we really need to do that and get beyond some of the minor irritants that often crop up and can derail a relationship. And I really do believe that we have to take a hard look and begin to reform the defense establishment. And I'm not the type of person, and my record will stand on this, that the way you fix it is you throw more money at it. Uh, we have to go in. We have to do reform to how we compensate people. Uh, we have to change the way that we buy things. We have to increase the speed with which we can introduce uh, capability into our military. Uh, and this is going to be a slow turn, but we have to make the turn now because I really do believe that the world that we live in, the pressures that we will face in, uh, in our entire budget, but particularly for me as I look at defense, the pressures that we're going to face there, we really are at an inflection point. And what we have been used to doing for the past few decades, as I said, is not on the books for tomorrow. And that's the challenge that we're going to face in the coming years. So I've talked far too long, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from Hoover, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channel in iTunes U. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.